Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Change on the Run podcast, where we discuss common change challenges and ways to address them when you're short of time. And I'm your host, Phil Buckley. Today's topic is testing a leader's thinking. During large change initiatives, leaders often feel pressure to set a destination and quickly marshal resources to get there. As circumstances change, they must make decisions that may change the course, shift priorities, or adjust outcomes. Leaders can get excited by or even invested in their ideas and potential solutions before thinking through the implications on timelines, resources, or costs. Without evaluation, their approach to solving one problem can unintentionally create new ones. The greater a leader's commitment to their ideas, the more difficult it is to influence their thinking. So, how do you test a leader's thinking to ensure their decisions lead to the intended results? And my guest today is Jennifer V. Miller. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Phil. Jennifer, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. And Jennifer V. Miller researches and writes about the social psychology of leadership and the ways in which the leader's thoughts and behaviors influence the social elements and outcomes of their work. She partners with leaders to elevate their leadership voice by helping them master the people equation for improving communication, team commitment, and business results. Jennifer is the founder of the leadership advisory firm, The People Equation, and is the creator of the blog of the same name. Her People Equation blog has won multiple awards in the HR and leadership categories, including top 25 HR blogs in 2020. Jennifer holds a BA Psychology, magna cum laude, Western Michigan University. Jennifer, what has been your experience with testing a leader's thinking? It's kind of a tricky business, isn't it? This notion of testing a leader's thinking. And certainly business practices over the last few decades have become much more collaborative and inclusive. But I think that a lot of people still hesitate to be perceived as testing something a leader says, especially if that leader has a perceived higher authority level or maybe a a different social status. But, you know, although it might be exactly what the project needs. There's a lot of reasons why people might not be so willing to stick their neck out and do so. So I think there's a lot of challenges around that topic. And, and I find even though the leader might be keen to say, give me your feedback, let's test this out. It's a safer place or it's a better place to say nothing, even if I have a better idea or I have an alternate idea that we could explore. Why do you think that's still prevalent in business today? Well, I really appreciate that you're bringing up safety. There's the notion of psychological safety, which is this feeling that if I say something, I don't fear that, quote, something bad will happen. And I put the something bad in air quotes because it could be anything, things like if I speak up and test a leader and put forth this idea that she has, or we're going to miss our project gate, or it's going to cause more work. So those are the more work-related things. But then the psychological safety is the concern of fear of retribution, concern about looking foolish. Like you had talked about cultural norms. You know, is there a norm in this organization that says that people are just supposed to be good soldiers and not push back? Or perhaps you don't push back publicly. You take that concern offline to a one-on-one. 
And, and the other thing that I would say I would offer for consideration to your listeners is a lot of times when I work with leaders now, or when I was in the corporate world, I would talk with colleagues and they will say, well, you know, Roger just, he is not open to feedback. And of course, I am a professional people watcher and I am relentlessly curious. So I would say things like, huh, what have you seen Roger say or do that leads you to that conclusion? And they would be like, well, this one time, six years ago, he did this and this and this. Fair enough. Has he done it again? How often has he done it? So I think that sometimes human tendency is to see something negative and place outsized value on its importance and its frequency and not balance it out with, let's talk about all the times Roger has been receptive or at least neutral to ideas. Fascinating. Isn't it true? And the assumptions that we jump to almost when you receive information from fellow colleagues or employees that seems a little bit surreptitious or it's behind the scenes or it's water cooler. There's a credibility that comes with that too. Well, oh, wow. Well, you say that Roger just doesn't do that. You must know something. These stories become our cultural norms about how do we get close to people? What other challenges do you find with giving feedback or helping leaders work through their thinking before they actually move to activation? What other challenges do you find? Well, one of the things that I would say is this is a skill to be developed. Being able to hear someone's thoughts about an idea, if it is in any way off track, unusual, but isn't just coinciding with how you had hoped the meeting would go, there is a communication skill necessary to draw out that person's thinking and do so in a way that's non-defensive. So I think that that one of the challenges is do project team members, do cohorts, do people who work together occasionally, whenever you bring together a group of people, do they have this skill set to skillfully surface ideas and vet them in a way that's productive. So I think that's another big challenge. Yes. And I would flip it too, to say if they don't have the skills to do that, and perhaps they try one time and the outcome isn't good because perhaps it's the phrasing or how they expressed it. That's a signal. Well, I'll never do that again, where it wasn't really the intent, but it was just the delivery mechanism. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, you had said something earlier that I want to key into as we're talking about these challenges. I would offer for consideration to your listeners, and I know this is going to seem just like, how could she say this? But guess what? Leaders are human beings, right? Like, oh my goodness. I think we put so much on a leader's shoulders. And so when they offer an idea, and I think you mentioned this in some of your writing, first of all, I believe most people want to do what's right. They have good intentions. It is rare that they have nefarious intentions. Leaders are often seen as problem fixers or problem solvers, which is a little tricky business because I personally believe a leader's best role is to help their team remove obstacles, not necessarily fix the problem. So depending upon if a leader has reached a maturity point in their leadership journey, where they understand that once they've been elevated to leadership, their role shifts a little and moves from always fixing the immediate problem at hand to removing those barriers. I guess that's kind of a challenge too. Like, oh, I hear that we're having problem with XYZ making it to the next delivery date. Here's what I do. And the team members are more like, well, that's great 
Stephanie. But Stephanie, what I really need is for you to work behind the scenes to get some buy-in from other people at your level to get some extra funding, you know, or whatever that is. So that's one thing. And I think that leaders have a bias for action. And so they move quite quickly. So that can create a challenge. And then I've also found that the higher up in the organization a leader is, their scope, their viewpoint broadens, or at least it should. And so they don't know all the details. So they have this idea that sounds really good in their head. And maybe it worked for them when they were operating at that role in the organization, a a different role that wasn't maybe had such a broad span of influence. And so they say, well, how about doing this? And then you can just, you can hear the eye rolls on the Zoom call. Like there should be like a little meter, ding, 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 that measures people's eyes rolling because it's like, oh, do you even know how far that's going to set us back if we do that? All of those comments kind of wrap it up in a package that leaders are human. And so I believe that when they offer these ideas, they legitimately are trying to help, but sometimes they do make it worse. And it is interesting that leaders, as they progress through their career and and have more influence in the organization, it really is an accumulation of their past experiences. And there's so much written about leaders and they tend to be hero's tales in the sense that the leader took action. And some of the case studies, like this person did everything and it creates almost a lore that I think adds more pressure on readers looking at this and saying, well, that's my model for success. And and I think over the last couple of years, there has been more of an understanding about removing barriers, building capabilities of your teams, not having all of the answers admitting that you don't have the answers, but we have the team that will find it. But I find when sharing those views with some leaders, they have the they have the eye rolling ding, 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 zoom meter that goes, yeah, right. I get it. However, I'm in charge and I'm going to do it. And I wonder how does past experience lead people to have this singular view of what a leader is? One of the things when you were talking about the hero, leader as hero, as a writer, one of the very most used narrative structures is the hero's journey. To answer your question, I find that that has been overused in the last decade. If you go to any business conference, my kids' elementary school or middle school or high school, I collaborated on a book project in 2012. And of course, we were trying to model our story after the hero's journey. You know, it's everywhere. And so while that singular issue is not contributing to what you talk about, I wonder if it has seeped into our fabric of our thinking about what a leader should be. And as my son, who's in college now, tells me, you know, again, with the eye roll, mom, the hero's journey is not new. I mean, like the Greeks made it up. So it's been around a while. Maybe we didn't call it that, but I believe it's also sort of jokingly referred to as the guy on the white horse, you know, charge in or the white hat syndrome or whatever, you know, leaders as heroes is definitely a mythology. And you are right that it is changing, but it's changing slowly to our itty bitty little brains where we have a lifespan of 80 to 90 years. But if you look at the history of leadership, it really has evolved fairly quickly if we're talking about just a few decades. So I do believe that yes, a leader, him or herself or their self 
may view themselves as needing to be the hero. And I believe that there are a number of team members who feel that as well. So yeah, you can get a bit of a disconnect. No, certainly. There's another scenario where there's a project that's specifically created for a particular change, where I find that you have an invitation if you choose to take it as a leader to set the rules of the road, or how are we going to engage? And how do we want to treat each other? And how do you look at my role? Which is wonderful if the leader, if she or he says, okay, great. Well, how do we want to work and and make it more participatory? Have you seen leaders go through that where they taken that opportunity to define how an intact team will work? Have you seen anything like that happen? I have. Many years ago, I worked for Herman Miller, which is an office furniture manufacturer. And I was privileged to be able to, I was on the the project team that helped launch one of their most successful products ever, which is the Aeron chair. And I would guess that many of your listeners are still residing their backsides on Aeron chairs because it was quite successful as a product launch. And it was inducted into the Metropolitan Museum of Art before the first actual chair rolled off the production line. So it was a pretty cool project. And yes, our project leader, Marilyn, while she didn't do it quite as detailed as you explained, and again, keep in mind, this was 20 plus years ago, she definitely built that sense of cohesion and acknowledged the talents that, you know, because it was a cross-functional team, I was representing as the learning and development department for marketing and product development. So it was it was a pretty diverse group across the enterprise. And she did a great job sort of informally acknowledging those things. I will also say that one of my favorite clients who I quote regularly and have collaborated with on numerous projects featuring his wonderful work through my writing, but also as a business consultant and leadership development consultant years ago when that was what I was doing, is he was one of the few leaders that I've known decades ago and who still does this today, who really attends to the people equation. When he would have a structural, an organizational reorg, he would bring me in and he would say, okay, here are the business objectives that I'm trying to achieve. Here are the players that I have to work with. Help me figure out how we're going to implement this change in a way that brings everybody on board, excites them, and doesn't freak them out. And so we would map out the plan. Yes. And and he would do that. He was at a mid to senior level in the organization. So he rarely led actual project teams. But were he to do that, he would probably do the same. So, So those are just two examples that I can give you on a project level and then on an organizational kind of senior leadership level, where when you pay attention to the human element, it is amazing how that greases the gears, if you will. It's the social lubricant of getting along, surfacing people's concerns, getting alignment. You know, the old who's going to do what and when are they going to do it and how are we going to navigate through changes and disagreements? My son is a resident advisor right now uh, at his university. And one of the things they're doing, which they didn't do back in the day when 100 years ago when I was in college, but I think it's pretty cool, is the RA is uh, responsible for conducting what they call roommate agreement discussions. So the roommates all write out what they expect about living together. And then the RA facilitates a discussion about how is this going to play out? And then also discussing what are we going to do if we disagree? How are we going to navigate that? And I think that's really marvelous to just call out 
potential human friction because ignoring it doesn't make it go away and responding to it might just make it a little bit easier. And what I love about it is running through scenarios of potentially what could we disagree on, whether it's curfews or cleanliness or whatever, so that it's That's not exactly a shock. It. Yeah. It's exactly it. And I haven't had a chance to find out how they're going. He had just shared that with my husband and I. That's a great example. How about, I'm wondering for our listeners, if they haven't tested or explored or help a leader think through or, or their thinking, or what are some of the signs that a leader would be open to that feedback if you just don't know? I would offer, if you can think of sort of two categories or sort of buckets of train of thought. So the first one is what I would call the practical or the lay of the land. And as we've been discussing, you know, just kind of think like, what do I know about this leader? Do they have a track record of being receptive? And if you don't know, because probably you won't know, because if you're not sure, you know, like you're saying, how do you know if a leader is receptive? Well, if you haven't worked with them before, but of course, test your network, tap your network, find out. I've got this project kickoff with a guy that I just don't know much about. I know you've worked with him in the past. Tell me a little bit about him. And so that's from the lay of the land. Like, what do you, do they have a track record of being receptive? And then the other thing is to flip it around and, and self-evaluate and say, what is your track record or what is my track record of working positively with this person or with other? And then the second one is more, again, what I would call like psychological, which is think about this person and ask yourself, what do they stand to either gain or lose by having their idea tested? Even if you don't personally know the person pretty well, I think you can spool out this project and their ideas and say, why might this person resist me pushing back on them or asking questions? And then the other thing, which is a pretty common thing, but I think sometimes we, we forget to think about it is how can you help this person win, quote unquote, win by listening to their idea or perhaps incorporating their ideas? Phil, one of the things I read when I was preparing for this from change on the run, your change on the run notes around testing ideas of a leader, you had a tip that said, don't say yes, but because it triggers defensiveness. And one of the greatest things that I read in Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants, is she suggests taking a page from her improv days. In improvisation, it's always yes, and because when you're doing improv, it's always about adding to the crazy thing that the person just said and had a, a previous to you. She says, yes, but closes off possibility. And I thought you were so smart to recommend that to your readers because yes, but of course triggers defensiveness. I'm working with someone right now who has lots of ideas. And sometimes we have to dig a little bit to find the gold in those ideas. It's my diplomatic way of saying some of them aren't always real great ideas, but it's important to me in the relationship that I have with this person to find a way to say yes. And, and you know what, about what you're saying, what I really like about what you're saying is, and then you extract that one thing that you can work with and see if that's enough to help them feel validated. Whenever you're talking about yes and, and taking the nugget that you can build upon, you sounded excited. You were excited. You were positive. So tonality seems to play such a big role in this that you want them to succeed. Have you ever gone to a leader and said, is it okay if I give you feedback? Is there a, a strategy of saying, I'm just going to chat with them to see if it's okay and say, I want them to be successful? Or is that too direct if you don't know the leader? It's a great question. 
And I think it's a possibility. And I wouldn't be able to give a stock answer because, of course, as you know, so many different factors to play into it. But it's certainly something I would consider suggesting. Ask yourself, is there a way I can approach this person to let them know that we're in this together? Feedback is such a tough, loaded word. I used to be a corporate trainer. I used to train supervisors on how to give feedback. We had a little model and you went through the little steps, which was great. And it was at least something that they could hang their hat on. Yet there are lots of memes out there too about, can I give you some feedback? You just know that whatever's coming after that isn't going to be great. So I would offer this. I'm not necessarily saying don't use the word feedback, just know that people have been preconditioned to know if you are being perceived to offer, quote, feedback, their hackles are going to come up. One of the things that I love about Adam Grant, who is a trained psychologist, he is a prolific business author, and he is a professor at the Wharton School in Pennsylvania in the United States. I saw him say something that I thought was so interesting and I'm still thinking about it. So I'm just going to toss it out to you and your listeners and see what you think about it. He suggested, and I don't know how this would work if you are using these words to communicate with a leader, but it certainly, I think, is food for thought with colleagues, is instead of offering feedback, you offer advice. Interesting. Isn't that? It's a positive word, isn't it? The little meme that he posted on LinkedIn. Yeah. As I recall, his thought process around that was feedback, again, has has become laden with, I'm going to criticize you, or I'm going to ask you to change in such a way that I'm not receptive to. Whereas advice is, take it or leave it. And it's a shame that feedback has been positioned as such, because when I used to train on you know, giving feedback, I used to tee it up as it is information, which helps the feedback receiver know whether or not their actions had the intended impact. Nothing more, nothing less. I saw this happen, or I have these ideas. I'd like to share this with you. It's up to you with what you do with that information. You, you just make it very value neutral, very non-judgmental. So back to your original question. Do we go and we talk to a leader? I am a huge fan of softening the market. When I was in corporate America and I was trying to build support for an idea or a project, of course I went And I thought about where the key stakeholders, who are people who are going to help me, who are people who might be resistant to me. And I wasn't above taking them to lunch or meeting them in the corporate cafeteria. And hey, we're going to be talking about that project next week. What do you think? And oh, what are your concerns? Are there any hot topics that are hot buttons that I need to be aware of? Again, these are all those people equation things that I know the pushback to that suggestion will be time, time constraints. I don't have time to do that. And my answer has always been, do you have time? to fix the mess it's going to create if you don't. And one of my favorite mentors who has who has retired now, but she was my work team leader at not one, but two organizations. I worked with her at an insurance company. I left and went to work for Herman Miller. Guess what? Six months later, she's my new work team leader at Herman Miller. I love her. Her name is Mary. And she used to say, pay me now or pay me later. And it's the same kind of thought. I know it feels like you don't have time to go talk to people in advance to kind of grease the skids a little bit. And you don't have to do this on everything, but if it's a really high stakes element of your project, it's probably worth going and talking to somebody about it. At the very least, you'll know what you're walking into at that next team meeting. 
Isn't it true that as part of the people equation, the fact that you are communicating instead of going off into a dark room and creating things that potentially people won't buy in because they didn't have any input, which I've done a lot in earlier on in my career. I'd love your thought on a particular challenge, giving advice to, to leaders, because whenever we have an idea, we tend to have an emotional attachment to it because it's our idea and it's something that people can judge us on potentially. So how do you separate leaders' emotional connection to it with the facts of what that idea is and keep them separate so it doesn't trigger their emotions or the fight, flight, or freeze response. Oh, for sure. So here's the thing that I've sometimes taken people aback with is if I have given them input, feedback, advice, whatever you want to call it, I will sometimes say to them, you know, if they've had someone offer a suggestion and it's clear that this person didn't think the suggestion was that great or either through body language or what they said, I will sometimes let the person know privately, well, you just called that other person's baby ugly and nobody likes to have their baby be called ugly. That is, again, another element of our humanity. We wouldn't put it forth if we didn't think it was a good idea. And so to your question more specifically, I love the idea that you have tuned in to essentially what is a psychological concept called confirmation bias. It's the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, even recall information that confirms or supports your own prior beliefs or your values. So to your point, I'm going to offer up this idea. And to my point, I think it's a great idea. And I don't want anybody to call my baby ugly because that's going to make me sad or defensive. So I have three tactics to suggest to you. These are three ways to sort of separate the idea from the emotional attachment. And the first one we've, we've kind of talked about, which is validation. You don't need to say these exact words, but the tone and the message needs to imply, I am not criticizing you, idea offerer. I'm assessing the idea. So let's separate your idea from you because I love you. You're great. You're a valuable member of this team. Let's talk about your idea. So that's one, like validate, like, okay, okay. By time. I'm a thinker. I need a noodle stuff. So if I'm hearing something that I'm like, mm, I can't get to yes and on this quite yet because I don't know what to do with it. You can buy some time. You can say, I can see this idea is really important to you. Can I think it over and get back to you by the end of the day? And then the third thing is what I call separating the wheat from the chaff which is here are the parts I can really work with or the part of your idea that's really intriguing to me is this. So try to validate at least that which you can work with. My daughter is a senior in high school this year and her English teacher, she has had both as a freshman and a senior this year. And this woman is fabulous. Shout out Mrs. GW. My daughter said at dinner the other night, I had forgotten what an amazing teacher Mrs. GW is. And I said, oh, really? Why is that? She said, I never feel stupid in her class when I participate, when I contribute. She never hesitates to contribute because she never makes a student feel stupid. So let's take a page from Mrs. GW. Let's not have our leaders feel foolish. Here's another little pro tip. If you have to pitch an idea to a leader, or you're going back and forth and you're trying to persuade them, incorporate an element of the familiar. This is one of my favorite things that I ever read about, which is I first read about it in a book called Hit Makers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. And the author 
is, I think the lead author was Derek Thompson. He's a staff writer at the Atlantic magazine. He describes how researchers were able to show that ideas that got like the best ratings, like if you gave people like a list of things, and what do you like about this ideas? They were ideas that promoted a fresh spin on a familiar idea. They called it this Goldilocks or this just right element to novelty. Like if it was too way out there, only your outliers could really like get in on it. They even called it optimal newness. Now, those of you who are in creativity and innovation will say, well, that'll never move us forward. That's a conversation for a different topic, right? (laughs) I agree with that. But if you're trying to bring people on board, align it with a successful project that they will be familiar with. If they're confirming what they know to be true, then you need to tap into that truth in a way that aids the project. It's so fascinating because the, the ideas that are too new are often rejected and potentially in time and in other circumstances, they're seen to be as brilliant as they are, but it's just too far out. And then the other ones for the Goldilocks analogy is that it's so similar that it's not going to move the needle forward. That's a great pro tip. Now we deal with so much speed of change and there's not only just the pace of change, but the amount of change that's coming on to leaders and their teams in the spirit of change on the run. If you could only do one thing with a leader that would help them work through their thinking to make sure it was the best. So it would give you that 80-20 response, but you could only do one thing, one tactic or one strategy. What would that be for you? Well, I've kind of alluded to it, but I'm going to make it more actionable. I would say if you only had time to do that one action in advance of a high stakes meeting with a leader, I would literally book 15 minutes on your calendar, go to that level of degree, because when you put it on your calendar, you've assigned importance to it only for the high stakes. This wouldn't be every time you have to meet with a leader. But if you have this high stakes meeting where you need to make a good impression, if you're first meeting with them, or you've got something you want to pitch that is perhaps not going to be received well, or you just want to build some rapport or invest in what I I guess I would call a people equation planning session, write down everything that you've observed about this leader or data that you've collected. If you don't know them, that might be useful. Just brain dump it and then kind of go, okay, like here are three things I'm going to highlight, or it will also help you surface If you lack data, because when you proactively give mental energy to the human element, you will be better prepared, period. That's great advice. Is there any final comment or insight or recommendation or advice that you'd like to give our listeners about helping leaders to test their thinking so that they do make the best choice and they are as successful as we want them to be? Absolutely. Right now, I'm reading an advanced copy of a book, Impact Players. It's by Liz Wiseman. She was the best-selling author of Multipliers. She's studied individual contributors. And what do those people do that set them apart? She had a phrase in here that I thought was so interesting. She says that impact players wear opportunity goggles. Where others see threat, they see opportunity. When you have to help a leader vet their thinking, you can choose to see it as an opportunity or you can choose to see it as an obstacle. While others get frustrated or freak out or check out, impact players are able to deal with ambiguity and things they can't control. So I'd like to leave your listeners with this thought. Although it might be frustrating to feel that you have to convince a leader, especially if it seems like sort of an obvious choice, the success of your project demands your ability to do so. You can either see it as a burden to bear or an opportunity to become an impact player. That's a great framing of 
the opportunity where you can add value. Jennifer, thank you so much. And thank you for being on the Change on the Run podcast. How can people get in contact with you? I'd love to have your listeners reach out to me. There's two ways. The first one is to Google LinkedIn. (laughs) I am on LinkedIn. And if you Google Jennifer V, like Victor Miller, Jennifer V Miller, LinkedIn, you will find my profile. Embedded in that profile is a free opt-in. It's a guidebook called Why Is It So Hard to Shut Up? 15 Ways to Think Before You Speak. And people love that little freebie. So go grab it. And then the other way would be, if you want to read more of my writing on my blog, would be people-equation.com. So there's a little hyphen in between the word people and equation, or just Google people equation and you'll find me. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And thanks for sharing your advice and perspectives. And I love your people equation blog. I've been following it for many, many years and it's so topical and it's so timely always. So thank you very much. And we'll make sure that all of your recommendations are in our show notes. Thank you once again for taking the time. This has been tremendous. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been great. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. And if you're interested in learning more about the podcast topics, check out the Change on the Run book or audiobook at changeontherun.com or your favorite bookseller. And until the next time, I wish you all the best as you continue to lead change.